Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Worked at Beckett Law. She previously worked at the United Nations in Lanham and Watkins, and she is, has served as an adjunct professor of law at George Mason University's Law School. Please join me in welcoming Emily Gao. Emily? Welcome to Heritage. Thank you very much, John. Heritage celebrates the initiative of Ambassador Sam Brownback and Secretary Mike Pompeo to elevate international religious freedom and to galvanize unprecedented bipartisan, multi-faith, international support for the protection of this fundamental right. We have enjoyed a wonderful week of discussions about international religious freedom with experts from diverse backgrounds and have been privileged to hear the personal stories of courageous people around the world who are standing up to religious repression in their countries. And we are delighted today to welcome a champion of international religious freedom, Congressman Robert Adderholt. He is in his 11th term representing Alabama's 4th Congressional District. In addition to being a member of the House Committee on Appropriations, Congressman Adderholt is also a member of the, committee, of the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe, also known as the Helsinki Federal Commission. It was founded in 1976 and is comprised of 56 countries around the world that together monitor human rights in Europe and Central Asia. Prior to being elected to Congress, Mr. Adderholt served as an aide to Governor Fob James and as a judge in Alabama. He is a graduate of Birmingham Southern College and the Cumberland School of Law at Samford University. Would you please join me in welcoming Representative Adderholt? Good afternoon. Uh, thanks, uh, Emily. I uh, appreciate the invitation to join you this afternoon and uh, have a chance to uh, talk about a, a real topic that's near and dear to so many of our, uh, so many of us, uh, near and dear to our hearts. And uh, also, I uh, just uh, was pleased to be here with Dr. Rhodes. Uh, Dr. Rhodes uh, uh, has worked on the front line of uh, the uh, human rights and his role as executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for 14 years. And so, it's uh, good to have him here today, so uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, as a member of the Helsinki Commission, the U.S. arm of the OSCE, I've seen firsthand the effect of the uh, IHF's work in promoting freedom of thought, conscience, and religion across Europe. Uh, one of the reasons that I first got involved in the OSCE 
uh, here, the arm here in the United States was because of the uh, human rights aspect and the religious freedom aspect that I thought was so vitally important. And uh, that uh, was around, I guess, about 2002 when I first got engaged with the Helsinki Commission and uh, with the OSCE arm here in the United States and have been involved uh, uh, ever since then. The International Helsinki Federation, of course, uh, some of you will know, was formed in the aftermath of the signing of the Helsinki Final Act back on August the 1st, 1975. The Helsinki Accords in the Final Act marked a significant moment for freedom in Europe. The political agreement was signed by almost every European country, including the former Soviet Union, as well as the United States and Canada. Signatories agreed to 10 principles along, alongside a number of issues on the definition of borders and the peaceful settlement of disputes. One of the most important agreed-upon principles was principle number seven, and I quote, the participating states will respect human rights and fundamental freedoms, including the, three, the freedom of thought, conscience, religion, or belief for all without dis distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. By agreeing to the Helsinki Accords, the signatories, including at the time of se there were several uh, Eastern European governments that, of course, as you know, at that time were very oppressive, and uh, they assigned themselves to the human rights benchmark uh, to which outside groups could hold them accountable. The Helsinki Accords gave civil society network legitimacy, and in 1982, the International Hel Helsinki Federation was formed to monitor human rights and the progress it was making among those who signed. Then later, in January of 1995, the Helsinki Conference transformed into the Organization for the Security and the Corporation of Europe, which we know today. And to this day, the OSCE, as it's called, uh, continues to bring additional security and prosperity to Europe, as well as building on the International Helsinki Federation's mission to, to promote full respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. There's one particular quote in uh, Dr. Rhodes' book which uh, stands out. Uh, when discussing the determination and resolve of human rights activists in the International Helsinki Federation, he, the, he made this remark. Quote, these people had little to lose except their principles, their most cherished possession, which they would not relinquish. End of quote. In the face of serious pressure, even the threat of death, these men and women worked tirelessly to uphold their beliefs and their values and to secure freedom in the darkest parts of Europe. So thank you, Dr. Rhodes, uh, for your important work and uh, which all of your colleagues uh, uh, have achieved. The subject of today's discussion is very important to me. Freedom of religious belief is a part of the fabric uh, of our great nation. The pilgrims who embarked for the New World took the extremely dangerous journey uh, in pursuit of that very prize, the ability to worship freely, to believe what they thought was right, and to practice this belief free from government interference and from hindrance. As our founding fathers went about building this new nation, one of the most important tasks was to protect this fundamental natural right. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In today's political climate, 
many have turned this statement into something that it's not. The concept of separation of church and state has prevailed over language protecting freedom of religion. The First Amendment does not demonize the role of religion in an individual's life. Quite the opposite. And it states that the freedom of religious belief is a sacred right. So important to the life of the individual, it must be free from government interference. The First Amendment does not instruct religious belief to stay out of government. It ensures government stays out of people's religious beliefs. The fight to secure the most basic right is never-ending. As President Reagan wisely noted, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Sadly, in recent years, we have seen an increase in oppressive regimes around the world and a weakening of people's freedoms. Freedom House notes that in the year, uh, last year in 2017, that 71 countries suffered net declines in political rights and civil liberties. It was the 12th consecutive year of decline in global freedoms. In its 2018 report, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom concluded religious freedom conditions continue to deteriorate in countries around the globe in 2017. In India, for, for instance, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom reports that in six states, individuals wishing to convert from Hinduism to Christianity must register with local authorities. In Turkey, uh, the wrongful imprisonment of Pastor Andrew Brunson has been a concern for so many of Americans, and so many Americans have been tracking that over the last several months. I was greatly relieved uh, to see he was released from prison just yesterday. And, uh, of course, as you know, he does remain under house arrest. Uh, We will continue to advocate strongly for the Turkish authorities to resolve this case in a transparent and fair manner. Uh, In his strong remarks, even this morning, Vice President Pence made clear that the administration's determination to bring about justice uh, for P- Pastor Brunson, and uh, we applaud the, the Vice President and this administration for holding their feet to the fire. Alongside these deeply concerning policy trends, we have also witnessed a shift in the language surrounding freedom of religious belief. Ironically, the principle of tolerance is often used as a tool to suppress freedom of religious belief, sometimes targeting conservative Christian values. In the recent case of the Masterpiece Cake Shop, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission did not practice religious neutrality in their initial decision. Many of us who believe that believe in religious liberty are anxious to see the outcome of a very similar case in Northern Ireland just, next, just later this year. Uh, without careful examination, Policies aimed at promoting tolerance could soon outlaw core aspects of peaceful religious convictions. We cannot and we must not allow these deeply distressing trends to continue. That is why I'm so glad to see the first ever ministerial to advance religious freedom here in the United States this week. In the lead up to this conference, Secretary of State Pompeo made his long-term commitment to freedom of religious belief clear when he announced the, the following about the conference. Quote, we will have our teams in the subsequent weeks and months in the field talking about religious freedom 
on a continued basis. We'll have just three days here, but we will be a mission, but it will be a mission of the State Department every day, end of quote. This, this morning, Secretary Pompeo confirmed the administration will make the ministerial at, to advance religious freedom an annual event. This is good news for freedom of religious belief literally across the world. I would encourage all the leaders that are present at this conference uh, to go back to the renewed uh, countries with renewed determination to make their mark and to secure freedom of religious belief everywhere. In the House of Preparations Committee, uh, we recently approved the annual State and Foreign Operations Appropriation Bill. The bill included language to give USAID the flexibility they requested to be able to support and to protect persecuted groups that have been targeted by ISIS. I was pleased to work with this agency and the Appropriations Committee to ensure the inclusion of this very provision. As you know, these persecuted groups were forced from their homes and their communities because of their religion. In 2003, there was 1.5 million Christians in Iraq. Today, there are between 200,000 and 300,000 Christians that are left in that country. That means over one million Christians were either killed or they fled the country in fear of their lives. Protecting these groups is not only the right thing to do, but it is vital for Iraq to be able to maintain a diverse, a stable, and politically viable country. I was therefore very happy to see that both President Trump and Vice President Pence have committed to do more and to work with faith-based groups to ensure those most affected by the recent genocide get the aid that they need. And we will continue to support and encourage them in their pursuit of religious belief. So thank you for the opportunity to be here this afternoon and to speak about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and it is very near to many members' hearts. I can tell you that from my conversations with my colleagues on a, on a day-to-day basis. Freedom of religious belief is a is a core foundation for a peaceful and a prosperous democracy. And I certainly want to encourage all of you to continue your work to preserve this most fundamental right. So may God bless you. May God bless the United States of America. Thank you again for the invitation to join me for a few minutes this afternoon to share my thoughts, and we look forward to working with you on this very important issue. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to invite the panelists to join me on stage. As you may know, 2018 is a landmark year both for international human rights and international religious freedom. This is the 20th anniversary of when Congress passed the International Religious Freedom Act, and it's the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which the UN General Assembly adopted in 1948 that created universal protection of the freedom of thought, conscience, and religion in Article 18. At this time, we thought it was important to both look back at some of the major trends in these movements, including the increasing politicization of both human rights and religious freedom, and to look ahead and to ask the question, 
how should we promote human rights to foster greater freedom for everyone to live according to their most cherished beliefs? I want to suggest three principles for us to consider. First, we should vigorously protect the freedom to seek truth about matters of ultimate importance, including the existence and the identity of God, and how the answers to this question should instruct our thoughts, our speech, and our actions in everyday life. This freedom is crucial to the flourishing of all human rights. The drafters of the Universal Declaration cited human dignity as the basis for all human rights. What evidence did they cite of our human dignity in Article I of the Declaration? They did not cite a particular religion or a particular philosophy. Instead, they cited our ability to seek truth because we are, quote, endowed with reason and conscience, unquote. Therefore, the freedom to seek the truth and to live accordingly is not just what may make us religious, it is what makes us human. Freedom of thought, conscience, and religion is in the DNA of the entire human rights movement. Second, we must protect the freedom to seek the truth and the freedom to speak and to act according to our beliefs about the truth. Our freedom cannot be limited to a church or a mosque or a temple or a synagogue. It must be, we must be free to exercise this in the public square. And this is what Article 18 protects. Article 18 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights also adds that we should not be subject to coercion to adopt our beliefs or change our beliefs. And it also guarantees the right of parents to educate their children according to their religious and moral convictions. And finally, the freedom to live, to speak, and to act according to our beliefs must be protected at all times, even when there is disagreement, especially when there is disagreement, including on controversial matters like the existence and identity of God, human sexuality, marriage, and the family. Otherwise, it is meaningless. Today's panelists will address two trends that threaten freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. First, the ongoing inflation of human rights, the addition of new economic and social rights that are actually economic and social development goals that people can seek through the existence of our human rights, but that should not be confused with human rights themselves. And then second, the growing tendency to prioritize the beliefs of some identity groups over the freedom of individuals to hold and act upon their beliefs about sexuality, marriage, the family, and what it means to be male and female. Just two months ago, in his first report to the UN Human Rights Council, the UN Independent Expert on Protection Against Violence and Discrimination Based on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity encouraged states to, quote, adopt legislation in relation to hate speech on the grounds of sexual orientation or gender identity and to hold to account those responsible, including political or religious leaders, close quote. In light of these trends, we are fortunate to have three experts in human rights, economic development, and international law to address these questions. I'll start with introducing each speaker individually before they speak. Dr. Rhodes is an international human rights activist, university lecturer, and essayist based in Hamburg, Germany. He is president of the Forum for Religious Freedom Europe, an independent NGO. 
He served as director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights, as was mentioned. He has promoted human rights all around the world, in the Middle East, in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere. He was educated at Rhodes Reed College and received his PhD from the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Rhodes. Much, <clears throat> thank you very much, Emily, and um, thank you for your um, your work and your engagement in human rights. Can everybody hear me properly? Because it says here, keep your mic close to you. <laughs> Is it close enough? Okay, okay. I'm I'm going to read a, a short paper. I, I don't I mean uh, you know getting on in years. I don't really trust myself to ad lib anymore. Um, and the, the title of the paper is "Human Rights Versus Freedom of Religion." And I'm going to try to explain what I mean by this. Why do we care so deeply about freedom of religion? Here in Washington over the past few days, many authoritative and sincere voices have affirmed the freedom of religion as a fundamental human right, as a priority for the United States government and its citizens, and as a priority for other states as well. And I can tell you that in my work in international human rights over several decades, nothing has moved me, nothing has enraged me or motivated me more like violations of religious freedom. Some time ago, I interviewed around 200 members of the Ahmadi community in Pakistan, and the Ahmadi community is, a, is, a, is a, 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 an Islamic uh, sect. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's a sect. And there, by the way, there are about 70 sects in Islam. <clears throat> and the, uh, these, these, these 200 people had all been subjected to grave violations of their religious freedom. And among them was an eight-year-old boy. He had shown great promise in school, but teachers abused him, humiliated him, and held him back because of his faith. His family was desperate about his future, and the, the injustice of this was, was unbearable to hear. And although I've had the difficult duty to interview many victims of torture and other abuses, just hearing about it made me feel as if I was suffocating. Violations of religious freedom are violations of our spirit. Religious freedom is the freedom to discern what is moral and to make moral choices. The sacredness of personality is a central principle of, of the Judeo-Christian tradition and one that applies to all people. The principle of liberty, the core of human rights, human or natural rights, derives from the claim that our personal relationship to the, to the divine, to ultimate and sacred things, and our quest for truth can't be violated without committing a crime against nature itself. People forced to give up their associations, their communications, their freedom of movement, their physical liberty, can nevertheless survive with integrity, even with a form of inner freedom. And, you know, you, you can read this in the accounts of people who have been in uh, the Auschwitz concentration camp. They, had, they were deprived of everything, but they still had their intellectual and moral freedom. But we will not... We cannot give up our beliefs. We can't do this even if we try. We can only pretend to do so and thus humiliate ourselves. We can only trade the oppression of the state for oppression by ourselves. 
No religious person can hide from God. No secular person can be forced to believe. Now I want to talk to you about the proliferation of human rights in the international system. Freedom of religion is thus arguably the most important human rights, yet it is among the most violated. And that is no coincidence. Today, almost half the nations on earth, all of them undemocratic states, impose heavy restrictions on freedom of religion and the struggle for religious freedom, while not political, is an obstacle to authoritarian rule in all those countries. And this brings me to the first point I want to make in support of my my paradoxical title, how human rights, as now conceived, fail to protect the freedom of religion and can even violate that freedom. The increasing abuses of religious liberty take place while there are more human rights, more human rights laws, processes, and institutions, more high-level human rights officials, and more national and international human rights bureaucracy. Leszek Balsarowicz, the brilliant Polish economist, observed that today we have more rights but less freedom. My colleagues Jacob Mishangama and Guglielmo Verderame counted 667 human rights provisions in United Nations treaties and 710 in those of the Council of Europe. While the human rights of Americans are protected by only 10 constitutional amendments, there are new unnecessary UN treaties in the pipeline, by the way, like a treaty for the protection of the rights of peasants, um, and they proceed toward ratification because states do not have the political courage to stop the juggernaut or understand why they should. The mainstream human rights community shrugs this off, but the problem with human rights proliferation is human rights inflation. The currency of human rights has lost value as more rights have been proclaimed, and human rights inflation has also occurred through ideological and irresponsible activist judicial interpretation, whereby judges create new human rights and change the meaning of of existing rights. And now I want to talk to you about natural rights a little bit. Diplomats from unfree states like to run down the clock at the UN with discussions about technical assistance programs, national human rights institutions, sovereign debt, and other topics, and to avoid the issue of freedom. The proliferation and dilution of human rights and religious freedom is a desired goal of abusive governments and one enthusiastically supported by useful idiots in liberal democracies who see in human rights a way to promote political goals and build a global regulatory utopia. I attribute this destructive trend to to the international community in 1948, having named economic and social rights as human rights. Today, we see the consequences of that error. The vast proliferation of human rights has been in the expansion of economic and social rights in collective rights not in individual rights that are the focus of the foundation of the UN itself. All governments, including the United States government, take positive steps to secure the welfare of their citizens. Governments and legislative bodies create laws to do so, laws that require compromises and trade-offs by which resources are transformed from some to the others. And I'm, I'm not arguing against uh, welfare here. 
I'm not arguing against Social Security or any social programs that, that we vote on to help our fellow citizens. But these welfare rates, but these welfare rights are rights. They are not universal human rights. True human rights are natural rights, rights that are universally held prior to any government and outside any social or cultural context, rights that are inherent, rooted in the natural order of which our common human nature is a part. Natural rights, including the freedom of religion, are sacrosanct. If our common human nature is to be respected, they cannot be violated or subordinated to other goals. We use our human rights in the political arena to express our political principles and to secure our social goals. There is a profound difference between these two kinds of rights, but today it has been fogged in and obscured by the UN dogma of the universality, excuse me, of the indivisibility and equality of all human rights. And this is a real threat to the freedom of religion. Today, sadly, human rights have become detached from natural rights, and thus basic rights and freedoms are seen not as intrinsic or in, and inalienable, but rather as optional and arbitrary and ideological in nature, like economic and social rights. The German Catholic philosopher Max Scheler showed the psychodynamics of this syndrome in his book Ressentiment. The very idea of natural rights is run down by those who cannot understand it or who envy it, perhaps because they find in it evidence of something lacking in themselves, the capacity to understand the foundations of transcendent values. More and more human rights have entered into international law, yet UN human rights dogma holds that all human rights are to be treated equally. The implications are absurd. For example, the European Union Charter of Fundamental Rights protects, quote, the right to access a free employment service as a fundamental human right. Is the right to employment counseling just as important, just as paramount as the prohibition against slavery or the right to be the right to freedom of religion? Or put another way, are those rights no more important than publicly funded employment counseling? What is more, the freedom of religion as well as other basic rights is subject to conditions and derogations in human rights treaties and national law, which may be a consequence of the expansion of human rights and the loss of the principle of inviolable natural rights. The European Convention on Human Rights, set up as a bulwark against totalitarianism, confirmed that everyone has a right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. But then it goes on to say that this freedom can be limited in the interests of public safety, the protection of public order, health, or morals, and for the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. These are rather vague. It is too easy for the European court to uphold interferences in religious affairs. Meanwhile, numerous European states are passing highly dubious laws restricting harmless manifestations of Islamic faith. And the European court has given the green light for the process. One that Mira Sukharov, writing in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, called, quote, part of an ongoing attempt to shame, provoke, and marginalize Muslims. Finally, how often we catch ourselves defending the freedom of religion because it is good for democracy, stability, and the economy. Well, it is, in fact. 
But <clears throat> that's not the point, though. Uh, Professor Marco Ventura in Brussels has observed that the freedom of religion is considered of value insofar as it is instrumental for other purposes. Indeed, all basic human liberties are commonly approached in this utilitarian manner. But the fact is that the free exercise of religion cannot be depended upon to produce desired results. It is precious for what it is, not for what it does. And let me conclude by saying that this is obviously not a time to be complacent about human rights or to simply blame the state of human rights on bad actors. The bad actors are going to be with us uh, like the poor, always. We speak about defending the freedom of religion as a human right, but how do, how do, do, we, how do we defend the idea of human rights? The adulterated concept of human rights and the corrupted human rights system have become obstacles to human rights because they debase the meaning of human rights and give cover to human rights abusers and to those who seek to exploit human rights to achieve political goals. Many observers today warn that the so-called rule-based international order is coming apart. International human rights institutions have lost credibility, and whatever, whatever our approach may be to dealing with this fluid situation, it is clear that to improve human rights practice, we must clarify our discourse. In the big picture, to improve enjoyment of <clears throat> religious freedom, we must recover the meaning of human rights. And while governments need to be held accountable for their abuses, that is a challenge for civil society. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Rose. I'm going to ask that uh, please hold your applause until the very end of the event so that we can make sure to have enough time for your questions. Uh, so next, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Shay Garrison, who is an international development prof professional who focuses on sustainable economic and social development and gender equality. She's worked extensively in the Middle East and Africa and was visiting research fellow at the Center for Gulf Studies at the American University in Kuwait. She is currently senior advisor for foreign affairs for Concerned Women for America and an affiliated faculty and policy fellow at George Mason University's School of Policy and Government. Thank you, Emily. Can you hear me? I want to speak to you today to add to what Dr. Rhodes has said and in within the context of, as Emily said, my experience as a development practitioner and academic in the inter international arena, the concept of human rights has increasingly become so watered down that it's hard for the practitioner and the policymaker to recognize the difference between transcendent, uh, or what I believe are God-given rights, of the individual and the things that we call rights that are actually only the interests of certain groups of society. And I would like to thank Dr. Rhodes um, for his work because he has helped me to articulate my frustrations in this area and also to think of ways to better respond. I am going to talk now about two additional points which I believe are important in shaping human rights concepts and goals and advancing religious freedom. So first thing I'd like to answer is are economic and social goals human rights following on Dr. Rhodes? For 
rights practitioners and policy makers, answering this question is not just an exercise in theory. It is an exercise in practical application. If we better understand the difference between these two sets of rights, natural rights or economic and social rights, we will understand the importance of and of these, and this will help us determine where we put our time, our attention, and our funding. Dr. Rhodes refers to the necessity of dividing these rights and says that if we do, don't do that, we reap the consequences of more human rights violations. Um, and I believe you said this in your book, Dr. Rhodes, and I highly recommend that you read that. Although I believe he is correct and mainly is referring to a division of natural rights and economic and social rights named in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, when we do speak about this issue to others, we should be cautious about how we use the phrase economic and social rights. Some rights termed this are actually human rights. For example, the term economic rights doesn't only refer to social welfare entitlements. In my world uh, of international development and women's empowerment, for example, economic rights activists work to increase women's equal access and participation to labor markets, to labor force participation, business ownership and entrepreneurship, and also to decrease gender barriers to inequality. Economic rights also include the right to own property, the right to fair wages, and the abolishment of slave labor or labor exploitation. These are fundamental human rights of equality and of equality and opportunity that women in many countries don't have. In this way, social and economic rights are not collective rights. They are the right of the individual to participate, to own, and to have equal opportunity in the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, as we call it. So in the sense uh, that women's rights and gender equality seek to advance the equality of the sexes and not to advance the interests of certain political or identity groups, women's rights are, as Hillary Clinton once said, human rights. My, my second point, do then economic and social goals matter? Well, our discussion on the need to differentiate between these types of rights does not imply incompatibility between the two, as Dr. Rhodes uh, uh, referred to. Rather, the assurance of our natural rights, such as, for example, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience and belief, allows an individual the vehicle to express and strive for the economic or social goals that they desire. In other words, this is what people can do with their freedoms. In his book, Dr. Rhodes also points out that whether or not protecting human rights leads to a better society, they should be protected. And he said today, and I love this phrase, phrase, religious freedom is precious for what it is, not for what it does. And I quite agree with him. However, in the fight to advance religious freedom, I believe we've got to be pragmatic as well. Yes, we've got to better clarify our human rights discourse and recover the meaning of human rights to improve our defense of international religious freedom. But we also have to show governments that it is indeed in their best interest and to equip policymakers and practitioners with a dialogue to convince countries, especially those that are not inclined to the vast majority of basic human rights. So 
let's discuss then, does religious freedom lead to better uh, social and economic well-being of societies? I believe the ability to exercise our natural freedom, such as religious liberty, is itself an improvement to society, but also it's an engine driving society's well-being. Um, in international development theory, for example, it, we promote community participation. It's called participatory theory as the most effective means uh, to sustainable economic and social development. A great deal of an individual's success in improving their own living standards rests on whether or not society allows and supports the exercise of their personal rights such as the capacity for taking part in creating their own livelihoods, governing their own affairs, and participating in self-government. So in, in this way, um, an individual is an active agent of change for their community and can participate in impelling the progress of opportunities. Um, in practical terms, what this means is that the added economic and social participation of religious minority communities can increase productivity of a country. Um, we've seen this happen in many societies where they are discriminated from even the economic spheres and the, and the social, social and civic spheres of society. But if a large percentage of the working age population is unemployed or even underemployed because of discrimination, as we see, this indicates significant underuse of a country's potential labor force and undermines the economic potential of a country. And this is something that the World Bank as well talks about and um, the international labor force participation. So in summary, a country that doesn't use its population to its full advantage in the labor force won't reap full production or income earning potential. And I just want to tell you, too, very briefly, I won't bore you with uh, dry statistics, but there is mathematical research, um, quite a host, actually, out there, to show a correlation between religious liberty and economic development or sustainability. One that I particularly like was done in 2007 by the Hudson Institute, and it showed that a presence of religious freedom is associated with the presence of other fundamental freedoms or natural rights, civil and political liberty, freedom of the press, and economic freedom. Where religious freedom is high, there is less, tends to be less incident of armed conflict, better out health outcomes, higher levels of earned, earned income, and better educational opportunities for women. Um, some of y'all know Dr. Brian Grimm. He's done a lot of research on this subject and spoke at the ministerial yesterday. He asked the question also, is religious freedom good for business? Because we know that business and private sector development in countries around the world will drive economic growth. He found a positive relationship between global economic competitiveness and religious freedom. And religious freedom in this context was defined by low government restrictions on and low social hostilities involving religion. Other studies suggest that religious freedom doesn't just have a, a, an association with these types of outcome, but a direct impact. Uh, on the other hand, where religious restrictions and hostilities are present, they have shown to be uh, directly detrimental to economic growth. 
And last, um, and I, this is kind of an interesting point, I think, um, where protected religious competition thrives, in other words, what that means is um, where one religion is not oppressed over the other or protected over the other, faith-based organizations can grow and thrive and add to the outcomes of increased literacy, skills training, and poverty relief. We've seen in many instances in Africa and uh, especially in Africa with HIV-AIDS, that faith-based organizations have been the main providers of care. So in conclusion, there's a lot of other research that um, I don't have time to go into and probably is only interesting to me anyway. But I believe that we do have a good foundation of evidence um, and theoretical evidence to promote the robust protection of relig religious freedom as an engine for or at least a great contributor to sustainable social and economic prosperity around the world. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Garrison. Now I would like to introduce Benjamin Bull, who is the Executive Director of Advocacy for First Liberty. Mr. Bull is widely recognized as one of the top religious freedom attorneys in the U.S. He also was the Chief Counsel of Alliance Defending Freedom and Executive Director of Alliance Defending Freedom International, which he envisioned and launched. Mr. Bull is also a recognized expert in constitutional law, and he has successfully presented oral arguments in federal and state trial courts across the country. He's also litigated a number of cases that were decided at the U.S. Supreme Court. Dr. Bull, Mr. Bull. Thank you. I'm the only panelist without a Ph.D., so Mr.'s fine, although Dr.'s okay, too, if you want. Um, I have to admit that sort of preparing for this presentation was kind of a guilty pleasure because I learned about all kinds of new human rights that I had that I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know that we have a right to be free from noise pollution. Um, I'm glad my parents didn't know that when I was playing Led Zeppelin in high school around my house. Uh, we have a right not to be spanked, which they know about that too. Uh, we have a right to play. And we had, there's a human right to peace, and that must be for John and Yoko. And I don't know how you would enforce that, but perhaps it's worth doing. Now, uh, enough for a little bit of levity, um, because this is, really is a serious matter. Um, we can talk about inflation of, of, of what we call human rights, and basically the, you know, the, we've so defined them, so watered them down that they don't mean anything anymore, except that the left, and I use that as the activist left, are using these newly manufactured, minted human rights to basically crush traditional human rights, the, the kind of human rights that, that most of us grew up understanding as being natural rights or human rights. And what am, what am I talking about? But striking a balance isn't enough. The left is taking these newly manufactured human rights and using them to crush traditional rights. Now, the one place, just to use an example, that's really the, the venue where, uh, which is the, the quintessential place where human rights, natural rights are exercised to the maximum degree would be the church. Whether it's a church service, a homily, a sermon, or a mass, you have freedom of religion. You have free exercise of religion. You have freedom of association. You have freedom of assembly. You have right of conscience. You have freedom of speech. In this new world that we're dealing with, almost directly from Orwell, there's something called a new human right not to hear speech and not to hear words that you find offensive, that you may find hurtful. 
while every country in Europe and Canada has passed so-called hate speech laws. In 2002, Canada, uh, Sweden passed such a law. A few years ago, uh, as a practicing lawyer, I heard about this pastor in Sweden. I couldn't pronounce his name. It sounded like something like Acha Green. Uh, pronounced the way it's spelled. It's Aki Green, but it's Aka Green. And this pastor was a pastor of a small evangelical church, 60, 60 people. He was uh, tried in conviction for hate speech for a sermon he gave in his own church. And when I heard about this, I thought, man, this guy must be a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Must be a natural-born troublemaker. I've heard about people like him. And the next day, I was invited to a conference in Geneva, Switzerland, which I usually don't do these kinds of things, but I saw that he was also a speaker there. So I thought, well, this is serendipitous. Maybe I'll say yes to this. So I got on a plane and went to, not to Sweden, but to Geneva, Switzerland, where um, I spent a half day with him. And I learned that he's about 70 years old, bald-haired man. He talks like Santa Claus, doesn't speak a word of English. He had a translator there, had never gotten a traffic ticket in his life, uh, was a guy who ran away from attention, never had his name mentioned in the newspaper once, not even as a, as a Boy Scout or a Little League kid. I mean, nothing. And the last thing he ever wanted to do was to, was to be the center of attention. But when Sweden passed same-sex marriage, he felt compelled to give a, give a biblical sermon in support of marriage and in opposition to same-sex marriage uh, from Scripture. Uh, because there are a lot of members of, his, of members of his church who sat home, they were sick, he would record it and make it available to them. Well, little did he know, a few weeks after he delivered that sermon, that he would be indicted, be hauled before court, he'd be tried quickly, convicted, and sentenced to jail for, for 30 days. Now, when I met with him, I, the more I learned about this, the angrier I got. I thought, well, we have to do something here. And I, I promised him, uh, whether he liked it or not, that I was going to get a bunch of international lawyers who were going to come around him and try to help his lawyer, a court-appointed lawyer, because Pastor Green had no money. Uh, his lawyer was Percy a Brat, who became a friend of mine. He spoke perfect English, and he agreed to allow me and some other lawyers help him develop a defense for the case as it moved up through the courts. Well, after his conviction, the state of Sweden appealed because they wanted to put him in jail for six months. Well, Percy Brat, his defense attorney, also appealed, and the case ended up going to the Supreme Court of Sweden. Uh, I was there uh, early in November when that case was argued before the court. Now, the Supreme Court of Sweden is different than the United States Supreme Court. There, the prosecutor, uh, in a black robe and a, and a collar, uh, has to actually produce evidence of guilt. He had to play the, the part of the sermon, that, the, the offensive sermon. So he, with much fanfare and seriousness, he hit the button on the computer and played about 12 or 14 minutes of the sermon. Okay, then he had a chance to cross-examine Pastor Green. And I remember the one question he asked him, and I had a translator, whispering in my ear. Uh, the one question he asked him that I remember like it was yesterday was this, why don't you use a Bible that doesn't contain these offensive passages? And Pastor Green answered him three, yes, three, Pastor Green answered him three times. There's only one Bible. There's only one Bible. And so later, after, after the trial, I asked about that. It, it turns out in Sweden, someone had, had taken the Bible and taken all politically incorrect passages out of the Bible and republished it. It's a very thin book. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you, can, you can probably get the book online from Amazon. Uh, to make a long story short, after a couple of months, the Supreme Court of Sweden threw out his conviction and, and declared that the state could not prosecute a pastor preaching in his own church because of rulings from the European Court of Human Rights. Now, if that were a case in isolation, it wouldn't be worth talking about except as a, a story that you know the, an old lawyer lived through a few years ago.
But since then, there have been over a dozen prosecutions of pastors in the United Kingdom. In the UK, there's a great tradition of standing on a soapbox uh, and, and preaching. Well, these people are arrested fairly regularly. Whenever somebody hears something, they find offensive. Uh, within the last several years, a bishop in, in Spain has been prosecuted for hate speech. An archbishop of Valencia was prosecuted for hate speech. Right now, there, there are two, excuse me, three bishops in Mexico that are under investigation for hate speech because they wrote a letter to the editor objecting to same-sex marriage legislation that was being enacted in Mexico City. There's also, in a a different part of uh, Mexico, there's a a Catholic uh, priest who's being criminally prosecuted right now. He's in court, right, as we're doing this presentation, prosecuted for hate speech. Uh, In Ecuador right now, uh, a group of uh, Protestant pastors and Catholic clergy held a march uh, in favor of traditional marriage, uh, not long ago, they were sued by under the, the so-called Human Rights Commission uh, for engaging in hate speech. That is that continues to be pending. Um, so this is a classic example of these newly manufactured faux rights being used to crush what is what is in actuality authentic natural rights, and, and that's why that's why. We need to move, if we can, move from, from the theoretical and the academic to what's actually happening with the flesh and blood, uh, put flesh and blood on these facts. Um, another case I want to mention, because it's, it's a classic example, another cl- like the Green case of what is happening. I worked on a case, uh, one case I won, the Green case, the, this case I'm going to talk about now, we lost, involving Trinity Western University in Canada. Trinity Western University is a, is a uh, Christian uh, university, very highly thought of and highly re- regarded. They have a law school. The law school has met the highest qualifications. It's gotten the highest uh, uh, grades. It's, again, it, it, from a secular standpoint, it is as good as any law school in, in Canada, except the provincial bar associations have declared that lawyers graduated from this law school will not be allowed to practice law. Because as a part of their, a part of being a student there, they had to sign uh, an agreement that they would not engage in sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That's disqualified them from practicing law. Now, you think, well, that won't stand in court. And we won in all of the lower courts in Canada. Last, 10 days ago, the Supreme Court of Canada declared that the state bar or the provincial bars were correct. That they had the authority to do this that these lawyers cannot practice law. And what's going to, the remaining provinces in Canada, I'm sure, will be copycats and will also pass similar legislation. Okay, that's bad, but that's not the worst of it. Now, having, having succeeded in basically destroying the careers of these lawyers who graduate from religious law schools, they will go after the licensed teachers at these schools, licensed social workers, doctors and nurses, all of whom have to be licensed and all of whom take the same pledge when they graduate from these schools. In the United States, being copycats as we are, they will come here and they will probe. Yes, we have our Constitution. Yes, we have the First Amendment. But we also have very, very creative judges that out of whole cloth found constitutional rights for a variety of things these last few years and none of us ever dreamed what would happen. Um, so if that gives you just a glimpse into what's happening by way of case law, 
we're talking about the organization of American, the uh, organization for security and cooperation in Europe, this, what we here call the Helsinki Commission or what the Helsinki Commission here works on in Vienna. One last war story that I think is very telling about what's happening. Again, newly manufactured, admitted, so-called rights in quotes being used to crush traditional rights. I did an intervention, which means a presentation uh, before the, uh, the OSCE there, which had representatives from 58 countries, uh, like a mini United Nations. I had my name there, Mr. Bull, and, you know, I just had my picture. Today. It was kind of a big thing for me. So I, I can't even remember what I, what I, what I talked about, honestly. It was so non-important non to me at this point. But I do remember who came behind me. The International Humanist Association had three speakers right in a row behind me, and they argued that countries in Europe support state churches. Taxpayers' money is used to support churches, uh, whether it's the Anglican Church, the, the Lutheran Church, Jewish synagogues, Catholic, Catholic cathedrals, evangelical church in, in Germany and, and in, in France. All are supported by tax dollars. They, atheists, are taxpayers. They cannot be excluded from membership from these churches if they pay the money that supports these churches. Uh, therefore, no church in Europe that's, that receives any tax dollars can exclude non-Christians from full standing and full membership. Now, as Presbyterian, myself, which is ruled by the membership, the members elect the elders that run the church, this is an existential threat to the church. Now, I thought, I sat and listened to this, and I just started laughing to myself. This is the most ridiculous thing. What planet do these people come from? But I looked around the room, and at least two dozen of, of these representatives from these countries were nodding in agreement. And this is a, a very, very serious threat. Now, you think, well, that's over there. It will never come here. Several years ago, uh, we had a case. I see my friend Piero Tozzi there. He and I were involved in a case at Hastings Law School involving Christian Legal Society. Christian Legal Society is a, is a Christian body of believers, law students, that exist and form a club for the purpose of prayer, worship, and Christian fellowship. They have been required by the Supreme Court of the United States to admit non-Christians to their membership and to be officers of that club. That is a sneeze away, my friends, from parachurches, and then from parachurches to churches. And I think my 10 minutes is up, Emily. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, before we turn to audience questions, I'd like you to give your recommendations uh, to the Trump administration for how we engage with international institutions like the United Nations, the Organization of American States, and also for how we conduct our own diplomacy and um, give development aid to foreign countries. Any any one of you is welcome to answer this question. I'm sorry. Could you? I was just thinking about the topic I was talking to the OSC that I forgot. <laughs> uh, do you have recommendations for the Trump administration with regard to our engagement in international and regional organizations, or to um, our own government, to USAID, um, to State Department? for how we go about diplomacy and development overseas. I would say one of the things we need to stop right away is something called tied aid, which, which is infamous at the United Nations, infamous at the you know, UN Human Rights, and it's infamous at the, at the Council of Europe and the European Union, where aid is, is promised to uh, developing countries, whether they're in Africa, Asia, or Eastern Europe, on condition that they create abortion. 
where abortion is not supported by the local community, or they create, you know, fill in the blank. Um, whatever the leftist agenda, uh, leftist agenda du jour is at that event, that's conditioned on receipt of that money. Well, historically, the previous administration was all in for this, supported it 100%. One thing that I think Nikki Haley is looking at in the administration could, could make a very strong public statement about is that this will end. This will stop right now. In fact, we will not support the United Nations if it spends a nickel towards this purpose. I'd, I would like to, to add to that, Emily. Um, I, I said this Tuesday, and I'll, I'll say it again. I, I think before that we even talk about what kind of policy to be made, we have to do what Dr. Rhodes has said and understand the difference between protecting human rights and what are economic and social goals. I really call them goals. <laughs> um, I have an example. It's kind of complex, so let me think how to, how to express this to you. But currently, uh, probably for about the, the past six or seven years, our State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development has been promoting what I call so socialization programs um, in LGBT. What I am talking about exactly is programs that are actually classes, I could show you curriculum, that teaches children and principals and health practitioners in other countries um, a redefinition of sexual or orientation and gender identity, and, and I could actually show you that. That, to me, as a development practitioner, is cultural imperialism. It is taking an ideology into a foreign country and telling them that this is the way that they should believe, whether or not you believe in same-sex marriage or not. What it is also doing, as a, this is a perfect example of what we're talking about today, is I believe that it's taking the focus away from protecting the human rights of the LGBT communities overseas. Um, we heard yesterday, we, there is a real problem um, with violence and false imprisonment and killings of, of people in other countries that identify in this way. We need to put our focus there. Um, I don't know the statistics on it, but I have, certainly have my observations. Instead of taking an ideology, which we are paying for and the majority of Americans do not support, and in my experience, the majority of the Muslim, Jewish, and Christian countries that I've worked in do not support it either. And my last thing, and, and perhaps Ben could speak to this more, is... What I have heard over and over and over again from my colleagues working in the UN area is that many of these countries are afraid to stand up and say to the United Nations and our State Department that we don't want these programs because they won't get funding. So I hope that's an example of where we need to focus on actual human rights of people. Yeah, and I, I would just just uh, second that it, the the UN it. it administrative bureaucracy is so far removed from the countries that sends them to New York or Geneva that it's breathtaking. Uh, very often, the capitals where these, where these public servants supposedly report to don't know what they're doing. And, and one step removed from them are the commissions and the bodies and these political appointees at the United Nations who are held accountable to no one except themselves. Uh, for example, the, uh, the, the president of, of uh, International Planned Parenthood um, became the president of the funding body at the United Nations 
that funded her organization, and she was both the president of the receiving organization and the chairman of, of, the, of the commission that actually made the funding decision. That's the kind of corruption that goes on there, and there's no, there's no light of day being shined on it. Thank you. Audience question. Oh, yes. Dr. Rhodes, please. I don't have much to say about this, and you know, I've, I've been living in Europe for since the early 1990s, and I, I don't really have a, a very detailed understanding of um, State Department policies or, or the kinds of things that you know are commonly talked about here in Washington. But I, I would just like to say that, um, um, especially with the withdrawal of of our government from the Human Rights Council, I hope. Uh, I hope this, the government does uh, take a, a kind of new initiative regarding human rights and finds ways to, to emphasize the importance of, of what we, we call natural rights. And, um, um, and then I think that, you know, going forward, as you say, uh, uh, we should find ways to work with, with allies, to work with like-minded governments, and there aren't very many, and we should look for ways to promote human rights outside of the United Nations. And we should, in other, you know, international organizations. Um, because especially the UN, which is a, you know, an all-inclusive body, uh, is not the, the best mechanism to, per, to promote um, principles which are not embraced by very many states, in fact. And, um, and so I think that, to, paradoxically speaking, to promote universal principles, we have to work with particular societies. <clears throat> Thank you. Questions from the audience? Uh, yes, there's a question in the back. Good afternoon. My name is Brent McBurney. I'm the CEO of Advocates International. We work with Christian lawyers and judges all around the world. Uh, the question for the panel um, is regarding the OAS and the African Commission and the various commissions related to the, those regional bodies. Um, this same thing is happening on that regional level as well. Um, Progressive are are bringing their their things their 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 agenda to impose from the top down on a regional basis. Uh, we see that from our colleagues in Latin America. Uh, at the OAS, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the African Commission for Human and People's Rights. Uh, and, and they're trying to push their agenda from the top down because they know that they aren't going to win at the ballot box. Um, so I would ask uh, the panelists to address that. Well, I'll start by mentioning the Mexico City Declaration of seven legislators, 700 legislators in Latin America who have all signed... Uh, this agreement that they will try to monitor the inter-American court so that the, there isn't judicial activism that usurps their role as legislators. I think sovereignty is a major issue in um, this discussion about regional mechanisms and international mechanisms because when you override sovereignty and you impose these um, new rights from outside a country, you're really taking away the power of the people to decide what they want through the democratic process. Oh, well, Brent, I think you said it best. Um, that was the answer to your own question. It's happening, and, and what we described at the United Nations and the European Union is happening in spades. 
at the OAS. It's, it just doesn't get front page coverage. Uh, you know, except for Dutch County, I wrote out four more left leftist countries in Latin America. I won't read them out. You probably know who they are, but that's it. The rest of the countries in Latin America are generally conservative, or, or at, least, at least middle of the road to conservative in, in their pro-family, their pro-faith. Uh, they're, they, don't, they don't represent the, the values that are being pumped out of the OAS, yet here it comes from the top down. Yeah. Another question in the back. Hi, I'm John Farina. I'm a professor of religious studies at George Mason University. Uh, I want to start by offering you uh, a wholehearted bravi. Uh, you all were uh, very much on point and holding some positions I very much agree with. But I want to um, look at another side of this thing. I was once giving a talk on the American system of religion and law in Romania to a bunch of Orthodox theologians. And the first and only question was from a a bearded Orthodox monk who looked at me and said, I don't understand what you're talking about. The Holy Fathers have reminded us that the prerequisite for a just society is a Christian emperor. Now, as silly, as remarkable as that might sound to us, it raises a very important point that I'm sure many of you are aware of, that in the pre-modern world, the world before our liberal democracies, the support of a religion by the state was fundamental to the way in which the faith thought about the ordering of society and the way in which the state thought about the ordering of society. And I, I certainly agree with you, and the reality is today that we're fighting a secular state. But what about states that want to say something different? What about a Saudi Arabia that says, yeah, we get to choose how religion is practiced here. We get to... to provide solicitude sort of certain faith because we're the protector of the faith as well as a secular state arm. Well, that, that's why we have universal human rights standards. Uh, we, we don't you know, I mean, I think the, in the Enlightenment, um, which was when the, the, the idea of human rights was crystallized. Human, not, the, the idea of natural rights has existed for many centuries, but human rights means <clears throat> to me uh, the ability of... of uh, uh, it, it presupposes a legal system where an individual can sue the state for, and get remedies for violations of, of his or her rights. But the... Um, uh, the problem with theocracies like Saudi Arabia is that they, 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 there's no separation of church and state, and there's no, um, and, and so it's intrinsically <laughs> it's intrinsically violating of, of the of the whole idea of human rights, and and um, and, uh, and and we 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 have this poses a tremendous obstacle in in the world, and it, and it, and it's not you can't imagine this going away very easily, and. Um, and the, the and and I, I I'm not sure I completely understand your question, but I think it is important to 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 work for reform in such societies and to work with with citizens and civil society organizations which understand this and and can and can gradually move these states to where they they open up and admit to diversity and where they they they. Reform their legal system so that it's more more in more in conformity with 
with with with with with with, uh, with human rights. Well, we have, but we don't need to be this way. This is a perversion of human rights, and we have to drag human rights back to its foundation on human rights and keep it centered on on, on freedoms. Thank you. I think we'll take one more question, and that'll be the end. Anyone else? Uh, the gentleman in the back there. Thank you. Uh, I'm a foreigner. I am from South Korea. My name is Sunan Gun. Um, first, uh, there are uh, many evangelical churches in South Korea, so there are some issues. Uh, there are uh, some progressive movement toward uh, legalizing gay marriage. So many uh, Korean churches has worry about this movement, and uh, usually the uh, the supporter for gay marriage say that. Uh, Hate speech toward gay marriage brings about some very big violation. Uh, so he <coughs> said that evangelical churches is like Holocaust when World War II. Of course, I think that is it is very over exaggerated. But uh, anyway, they usually say that hate speech brings about a big violation toward gay and so minority groups. So uh, many Christians is very cruel. And the bad guys, so many leftists or progressive movement supporters say, usually say like this. So, how do you think about that? Uh, hate speech brings about big, some physical violence, such as Holocaust. Of course, I think that is very <laughs> over exaggerated, but how do you think that about this? Um, I. I I can I I'll respond this way. I th- I think that wherever hate speech is 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 enacted, inevitably it's a slippery slope to doom. Um, eventually, you basically are going to ban anything anybody says it's offensive to somebody. The lowest common denominator to that is North Korea. Um, I think that the better answer is the traditional answer of the United States, which was if you if you there's speech that you don't like, answer it with counter speech. That if there's speech that you don't, the ideas that you don't want to hear in the marketplace of ideas, have a better idea and have a debate. The answer is never censorship. Because once you start censoring, the dictionary, like in George Orwell's 1984, will get smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm totally opposed to hate speech legislation um, and, 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 it, and it's used to silence others that you don't agree with and that that's what it is and and but it's one thing that we ought to remember and you know violent speech is dangerous in society no question but um in the Weimar Republic in Germany there were hate speech laws they didn't stop the rise of nazism Thank you uh, to all of our panelists. After uh, the after we exit the auditorium, uh, Dr. Rose will be available to sign copies of his book, which are available outside. We also have uh, heritage papers, which we've written on these subjects. Thank you, everyone, for joining today. Please join me in welcome and thanking the panelists.
Oh, I, I, I love this kind of stuff. Yeah.